Welcome. My name is Eldon, and uh, we're going to get into God's Word this morning. So if you have a Bible with you, open it up to Philippians chapter 3. We're going through a series this summer in the book of Philippians, this wonderful book all about joy in the midst of anything. So Philippians 3, and chap- or verse uh, 12 to chapter 4 and verse 1. And if you don't have a Bible, we have free ones available for you at the Welcome Center. You can take one, bring it, take it home if you want. And uh, otherwise, I think the text will be on the screen as well. So Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. Uh, Paul said, finally, my brothers. Uh, no, wait, that was last week when uh, <clears throat> Pastor John threw me under the bus. <sighs> Nonetheless, there's only five points to go and a few stories. Okay, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made, has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus." Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we, wait, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's take a moment to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll get into this wonderful passage. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it is uh, through your word that we listen and we believe. And so I ask God that uh, the hearing of your word today, uh, as, as I just read it and as uh, I try to explain it, would be something that would be transformational in our lives. Lord, your, your word will not return void. We know that. So would you, God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, as you apply your very words to our hearts, just have your way among us? Lord, I know for, for myself, I long to be changed, um, convicted where I need to be, Lord, uh, comforted, um, challenged, So would you do all of these things in our midst this morning? Have your way among us, God. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. So this morning, I want to encourage you. If you are having, particularly this morning, if you're having a hard time pressing on, not just in life, but, but particularly in your spiritual life, today's text is meant to be an encouragement, but also a challenge to you. It's all about pressing on as uh as many of us, including me, have difficulty doing from time to time. It's the reality of life. 
There's a, uh, an author, pastor, an author, he's passed away now, but his name is Dallas Willard, who's focused a lot on uh, the spiritual disciplines, disciplines and the spiritual life. He wrote this. We must stop using the fact that we cannot earn grace, whether for justification or for sanctification. Those are a few big words we've been talking about lately. We, cannot, we must stop using the fact that we cannot earn grace as an excuse for not energetically seeking to receive grace. Having been found by God, and this is what the Apostle Paul said, Christ Jesus made me his own. Like Paul understood that God found him. Having been found by God, we then become seekers of an ever fuller life of him. It's interesting. We become seekers after God finds us. It's a different way of looking at this whole seekers thing, right? We become seekers of an even fuller life in him. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Let that sink in for a moment. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. The realities of, of Christian spiritual formation are that we will not be transformed into his likeness by more information or by infusions, inspirations, or ministrations alone. Though all of these have an important place, they never suffice. And reliance upon them alone explains the now common failure of committed Christians to rise much above a certain level of decency. What an amazing quote. So in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul gives us at least five things that I want to focus on today that will help us, as Willard put it, to, to receive this grace. Um, to rise above a certain level of decency, five ways that we can keep pressing on in our faith. Are you ready? Number one, pressing on means that I must not, I'm starting with a negative, the rest are all positive, I must not pander to perfection. I must not pander to perfection. Paul, Paul wrote, not that I have already obtained this, um, I'm not going to go into what this is because that's what we've been talking about for weeks now. <laughs> All of this rich stuff that Paul has been talking about that we have in Christ, not that I have already obtained this primarily to the resurrection, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. To make it my own. You see, sanctification, that work of the Spirit in our lives after we've become uh, a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a partnership between the inner working of the Holy Spirit and what, what, what we put into it as well. You see, holiness uh, doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. Our salvation does. It is a pure gift from God. Faith is a gift. Grace is a gift. Sanctification is also a gift, but it also means that we need to make it our own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Paul is saying, you know what? I've got a long ways to go. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I have not arrived. I am not God's gift to the world. And if the Apostle Paul had such an attitude, how much more should we say, I haven't arrived? There is so much more for me to do, so much more for me to learn. I've got a long ways to go. You see, if you think that you've arrived, you will not press on. You're going to sit back and you're going to coast, and, and, and that's a very dangerous place to be. Not only in your personal life, but it's dangerous in your personal spiritual life, but it's true also of marriage, of business, even of, of sports, all of those kind of things. If you just coast 
you're done. It leads to stagnation at best and decline at worst. You see, even the best professional athletes are the ones who are first to arrive at the rink. They're the first to take the court on game day. They are the last to leave after training because they are never satisfied with their game. There's always more, and that's why they are the best. Because they're there early, they're alone, they're working on the fundamentals over and over and over and over again, and that is why they're good. That's why they're professionals. Um, Some people use the term, you know, I'm just resting in Christ or I'm resting in God's love as an excuse to do nothing. You know, I'm saved. I'm good to go. There's nothing else to do. It's dangerous. Paul did not have that attitude. In uh, 2010, nine years ago, when I was actually in shape, trying to get back there, by the way, so hold me accountable. Marcy and I bought memberships over at the rec center, so I let the cat out of the bag, so now you have to ask us how many times this next, next Sunday, ask us how many times we went, all right? Ten years ago, I was probably in the best shape of my life. And uh, I, I was uh, running uh, 10Ks regularly, and we would do the sun run every year in Vancouver. And, and this particular year, I was turning 40, and so I said, you know what, a goal that I have is to run uh, 10 kilometers, the sun run, at the age of 40 in 40 minutes. I want to do this in 40 minutes. And I was getting so close in my training, right? I could, do, I could do a 10K in just under 20, so I figured, okay, I can do, I mean, a 5K. I could do a 10K in, in 40. So I trained hard. In fact, I overtrained. <clears throat> Didn't make it. And my 12-year-old son blew me out of the water by a few minutes. Nonetheless, I was just over 40 minutes, 41-something. My son, 38-ish. Did an amazing job. But one of the things in training was that... Um, the the training varied so much from day to day and week to week. I followed a strict regimen for months up to the sun run that year. And and so one of the things was you actually had to to get to a point where you could double your distance so that when you run a 10K, it's a lot easier. You go, oh, this is only 10, right? And so one day I got up early and I couldn't sleep and and it was getting close to the time where I was supposed to try the longest run. So I said, I'm going to do this. It was like four in the morning. So I said, I'm going to do a half marathon by myself. And I did. I completed it. But what happened was I had never pushed at that point past 12 or 13 kilometers. And so when I hit that point, I'm like, oh, oh, (laughs) this is different. By 15 kilometers, I could barely run. I was hurting so bad. The next six kilometers were a struggle. I did manage to pick up a bit more energy, and I pushed through the pain, but I quickly realized this is an entirely different level, and I, realized, and, and I said, there, there's, there's obviously more than what I've been doing. And that's Paul's point. Don't pander to perfection thinking, I have arrived. I can do this. There's always more in our spiritual life that we can do. Secondly, wish I could camp there the whole morning, but I can't. Secondly, pressing on means that I must process the past. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. The word forgetting means uh, no longer caring for, no longer caring for. I tell you, when you, 
when you commit yourself to running, you know, 20 kilometers plus, there's certain things that you have to no longer care for. And one of them is all the things that I care for right now, you know, the sweets, the chocolate, all of these wonderful things, right? Like you just go, I, I can't do that if I want to reach my goal. Um, all of the stuff in my past, the bad and the good, I have, that forgetting means that I haven't forgotten about it, meaning that it's no longer in my mind, but it means that I no longer care for it. It's not going to control my future, particularly my walk with Jesus, will which will eventually lead to his actual presence in eternity. Nothing will get away of that, in the way of that goal. So I got to deal with that in order to move forward. You see, Lot's wife looked back. She cared for what was in Sodom more than what, for, what God had in store for her in, in, the, in the future. Her and Lot, she looked back and she missed out and she subjected herself to destruction. And Jesus picks up on that in Luke 9. He said, no one who puts his hand to the plow, no one who begins this life with Jesus and then looks back, which means they care, you care more for that than the direction that God is calling you in, is fit for the kingdom of God. He was very blunt. You can't say I'm going down that path and then care more for what's behind you. So that's what Paul said means when, he's, when he says, I'm going to forget that. So we have to deal with that stuff so it doesn't hold us back. And, and so sometimes moving forward, pressing on in our lives, means we need to take a step back in order to deal with some stuff. You know, there's the song that says, you know, uh, one step forward and two steps back. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about two or three steps forward, maybe taking a step back, and then we are released to go further forward. See, there's this, there's this uh, verse in Scripture that, that says that, uh, God remembers our sins no more. Does that mean that he forgets what we've done? I mean, how, like, how can he? God is sovereign. He knows all things. He's like omniscient. No, God doesn't forget our sins. It means that he chooses not to re-memory them. He will never bring them up again and hold them against us when they've been confessed and repented of. He has dealt with them. And he dealt with them under the blood of Jesus and those things are no longer part of our history. Does God know that, they were, that we committed those sins or whatever they are? Yes, of course he does but he doesn't rememory them. So for us to forget what lies behind does not mean that we don't remember. It means that we're not stuck there. We choose to acknowledge, to confess, to repent of those things that hold us back, that threaten destruction, and then we move forward. And they can be not just bad things, they can be good things too. Um, in 2007, I think it was... Uh, my son Josh and I, we made a trip together with his soccer team and the head coach of Chilliwack FC at that time because uh, he had ties to Bolton, uh, England. So uh, he arranged for a week-long training camp at the Youth Academy in Bolton. And Bolton at that time was in the English Premier, Premier League. They since have been relegated. They're a good team still, but they got Reebok Stadium. We stayed in there and the kids would train hard and all these things. And Remember the one day we, we got to have a tour of all the whole grounds and the facility and the pitch that the Premier League team plays on. And then also the little platform way up top where they video the game, they, they televise the game. But then the guy who was giving us the tour, he pointed out along the, uh, the, the, the top of the upper level, 
all, all these cameras that were there. There was uh, 13 of them. 13. So there's 12 players on the pitch. They have one camera dedicated to every individual player. And one just videos the whole game. And so every single player on the team is videoed personally. And there's somebody controlling the camera to follow that one guy the entire time. And so the, the head coach or the manager, when he's sitting in his cushy chair there watching the game, and he sees something that he likes or he doesn't like, he'll say, tag that. He's got a little microphone on. And the video operator who's on that player who has the ball at that time, or he'll say the number of the player, they record it, they hit a button, and it'll record 30 seconds before and after the play that he wants to tag. And so when they go into the dressing room at, at halftime, they immediately bring up all these tags and say, see this, see this, see this, see this. Well done, you got to stop doing that. <laughs> and, and, then, uh, and then they carry on. After the game, they watch the whole thing. They have to watch themselves to know how to improve. And so they do video review. And so this is what Paul is t talking about, video review. He says, you know, we've got to forget some of the bad things we do. Paul forgot what lay behind him with all of his failures. Uh, earlier in the chapter, he talked about persecuting Christians, uh, verse 6. He considered himself the worst of the apostles, the chief of sinners. I don't deserve this grace in my life because this is what I did. This is who I used to be. But he didn't wallow in them. He knew that he was saved by grace. In fact, he said, you know, I work harder than all of these apostles now. <laughs> I'm putting a lot of effort into this because I know the grace of God in my life. But he didn't forget them in terms of not acknowledging them and just never, this never happened. He said, this is who I was. This is how God has dealt in my life and forgiven me, and this is who I am today. And I know that many of you, I struggle with sins of the past, maybe sins of the present. And that can cause you to get stuck in guilt and shame and not being able to move forward. And I have some good news for you today. I mean, there's many examples in the Bible, but I think of Luke chapter 7, this woman who came to see Jesus. Her sins were many, even more than Marcy's. And uh, <laughs> that's another in-house thing. You've got to talk to me about that later. But anyway, this woman was so distraught by her life and, and all of the sin that was in there that she broke into a dinner party that Jesus had been invited to by the uppity-up religious people of the day, she broke in. She interrupted the party and she just wept at Jesus' feet. And she took this uh, jar, a very, very expensive perfume that had probably been a family heirloom passed down through the generations. A priceless heirloom filled with priceless ointment and she poured it out on him and she wept and she kissed his feet and she wiped them with her hair because she was over, so overcome by the mercy and the grace of this Jesus who was calling himself Savior and he said to her daughter your sins are forgiven your faith has saved you go in peace And if you're in a situation this morning where you are feeling this way, 
God, Jesus also wants to pronounce the gospel over you. That you can be forgiven by your faith in him, your repentance, your tears, your confession of what you've done, and allow him to wash his grace and his peace over you as you trust him and pour your heart to him in true faith and repentance and allow him to forgive you. He wants to do that for you this morning. But Paul not only forgot about his terrible past, he also forgot about his achievements, the things that he was so proud of, his wins and successes. You know, he just finished listing his reasons for confidence in self and Jesus. You know, he's roughly at this point 30 years into the faith and was the greatest missionary ever. You know, he had planted roughly 14 churches by this time, and those churches had gone on to plant churches In fact, through Ephesus, one of his crown jewels, (laughs) they went on to plant many churches so that everyone in the whole province of Asia heard the gospel. And that's the kind of success in the past that can tempt us to rest on our laurels and not on his grace. We can get stuck in the glory days. You know, we did this and we built this and the church grew this much and this many people came to faith and we did ran this program and and, and it's right and it's good to celebrate the past and to praise God for it, but not to rest in the good old days and not press daily with Jesus <laughs> to say there's things to do for him now. All of those things, they're good, but they ultimately don't matter. It's what's forward that matters. It's more people that need to be reached for Jesus. So my question is, what do you need to forget this morning? At the end of the service, we always have people that come to the sides. They have a little lanyard on that indicate that they're there to pray for you or with you. You can be as detailed or not as you want. You can just go, I'm struggling, pray for me. Or you can say, this is what I'm struggling with, and I need to be forgiven of this. And they will pray for you. Their job is to pray, not to be your counselor, but just to pray If God is identifying something in your life right now that you need to forget in terms of, uh, you know, you're not going to allow that to control your future, come for prayer. We do that after the service. Some of us need to do what Hebrews chapter 6 verse 1 says, Therefore let us leave behind the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. And so Paul says there's another aspect of pressing on, and that means that I must participate fully in the present. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind, and straining forward to what lies ahead. We need to move on to greater maturity. This week in my, part of my Bible reading, I was in, I'm in the Psalms, and I was reading Psalm 108, and you know, this amazes me because this is a Psalm of David. David wrote many of the Psalms. And as we know, or maybe you don't, David uh, had an incredible moral failure in his life had a checkered past, an unbelievable one, where he took another man's wife and he slept with her and he had a child with her and he, he put her husband on the front line to be killed in battle so that he could cover it up and take her to be his wife. 
And God confronted him on that, and he repented of that. He lived with the consequences of that, but he moved on. He pressed on, and in Psalm 108, well, this was well in his past. It just amazed me as I heard the words of David. He said, my heart is steadfast, O God. Isn't that awesome? Like in, in days prior, his heart was not steadfast. He was wandering big time. Now he says, my heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. I'm all in, God. I'm all in. I want to I strain forward with you. I don't want to do that kind of stuff anymore. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great above the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. He, he understood the love and the faithfulness and the steadfastness of God, his Savior, because he had been forgiven so much. It's beautiful. And it's becoming more and more prevalent, but the best most people can do if they have not processed the past is not only can they not strain forward to the future, but all they can do is just cope often with, with medicating, leading to addiction, all kinds of addictions, which leads to just hopelessness. And you only have to look as far as the news and just all around us to see this stuff. Je Jeffrey Epstein, <laughs> just such a, a, a good current example right now of somebody caught in all of this stuff, not having dealt with it. He committed suicide in his prison cell awaiting trial just the other day. But Paul said, one thing I do, just one thing I do, I want to forget that and I want to move forward. I, I, I don't want to be controlled by the past, but I want to go on with Jesus in a meaningful way. And so he just says, I want to just do this one thing. His singular aim was to pursue a greater knowledge and love and relationship with Jesus, to know him more and grow spiritually. What about you? What is your one thing? What what? What would one change be that you could make in your life, in your routine, in order to pursue the one thing, the prize that matters most? What, what would be one thing? Maybe it's, as I've already said, as, as the writer of Hebrews said in chapter 12, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so close and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So what is one sin or habit or activity that you could lay aside in order to pursue Jesus more? Or what is the one thing that you could pick up so that you can press on? Something that you can take on that you haven't been doing. Uh, Paul talks about two things. Verse 17, he said, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes close on those who walk according to the example you've, you have in us. So Paul said, maybe one thing that you could do is imitate someone else who has a more mature walk with Jesus than you do. A mentor. There's people out there that you can emulate. They are living examples, not just books and authors and blogs and podcasts, but somebody that you can phone and meet with and talk to who's passionate about studying their Bible or has a vibrant prayer life or who, somebody who loves his wife in a way that emulates Jesus well or a parent that loves their kids like Jesus commands and you say, I want to be like that. Paul said, Imitate me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. But there's, well, Paul also mentions bad examples to avoid verse 18. I don't think these are on the screen, but in verse 18, uh, Paul says this, 
For many of whom I have told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These people you have to avoid. Their end is destruction and they were in the church. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with their minds set on earthly things. These enemies of the cross, they, they could be potentially uh, what Paul called Judaizers, those who stirred people up and said you have to follow a set of rules in order to be a Christian. You know, you have to be circumcised, you have to follow the law, you have to do all of these things. And they were causing a lot of problems for Paul. But whoever they are, they appear to be people who have made some sort of profession of faith in Christ, but in reality, they oppose the gospel. They're those inside the church, but they really, they're outside of the Christian faith. Paul said their end is is destruction. And the reason he said that is because their profession is false. It's fake. Their God is their belly. In other words, their motivation is to please themselves. Uh, It's those who elevate their own desires to the level of divine authority in their lives and for other people, preferences. They worship what feels right for them. He says their glory is their shame. Simply put, they show off about things that they should be ashamed about and they celebrate the things that are opposed to God's ways. Don't emulate that. And, And finally, he says their minds are set on earthly things. The things they get excited about are worldly things. They're of no consequence for eternity. It's not Jesus, the cross, the resurrection, and the kingdom of God that captures their hearts, but it's the world. Oliver Wendell Holmes said this, Some people are so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good. But in the context that we're talking about this morning, it's actually almost the opposite, that some people are so earthly-minded that they're really of no heavenly good. And Paul is pointing us to, to the reality of heaven which we need to think about more. How much do you, how much do I think on a daily, weekly basis about heaven? Because that's, Paul said, the goal is knowing Christ and the prize, we'll talk about what that prize is yet, but it's not here, the prize, it's there. It's across the finish line after we're done on this earth. So the fourth part about pressing on, Paul said, means that I must pursue that prize. I must pursue the prize. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. There is something beyond us that we need to press on for. Something bigger. The goal for the prize of the upward call. The goal is the full knowledge of Jesus and the full likeness of Jesus to be like him. That's our goal. But the prize is literally to be with Jesus and like him in heaven and receiving the crown that he has in store for those who are faithful and who actually cross that finish line. Paul wrote about it in in the letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. He said, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it 
to receive a perishable wreath. You see in the games back in like Greece, the Olympics, they, the winner of the different games would receive a wreath. They put a little wreath on his head. That was the crowning glory of athletics in that day. Paul said they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. There is one day where we, if we finish that race with Jesus, will receive a wreath, a crown, literally a crowning glory with Jesus. Scripture talks about that crown in, in, in several different places, actually. So Paul said, so I don't run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body, keep it under control. And he talks to them in verse 20 about the fact that he reminds them of their citizenship, their true citizenship, which is in heaven, where the prize is. So as a colony of Rome, Philippi, these Christians would have had a Roman citizenship, as Paul did, where Caesar ruled his vast empire. But as Christians, he reminded them that they had a greater citizenship, a true one in heaven, where Jesus is ruling the universe, not just a part of the world, but the, the entire cosmos, an infinitely greater king ruling an infinitely greater cosmic kingdom. And as citizens of heaven, the Christian has this eternal hope in Jesus that one day we will be with him. Then we will see him face to face. It's where my mom is right now. She passed away in February. And we buried her March 1st. And I am full of joy that my mom saw that finish line. And right now she's wearing a crown. I know she is because of her faith in Christ and the way she just treated other people like a humble servant of God. She was so faithful. Paul says, as the citizen of heaven, we will be with him one day. We will see him face to face. And, and Paul says not only that, but in this text and many other places in, in the Bible, that because Jesus rose from the dead and he's alive and because of the resurrection of Jesus that we will have the perfect confidence of life with Jesus beyond the grave and that we will have transformed new bodies, brand new. So Jesus said to his disciples before he went back to heaven, before he died and paid for our sins and was rose again, I'm going to prepare a place for you. When everything is ready, I'll come and get you so that you will always be where I am. What a promise. Do you have that assurance today that if you were to die even on your way out of this building this morning that you would be with Jesus? That he has a place prepared for you? If you're not sure, make it sure today. That's another good reason to see a prayer partner is to say, help me with my assurance. Am I a believer? I want to believe. Would you pray for me? They will. But you can do it on your own. Jesus says we'll be transformed. His crucified body became a glorified, resurrected body three days later, and our mortal bodies will, mortal bodies will be transformed to be like his. That's what Scripture says. 1 John chapter 3, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. James Montgomery Boyce said this, apart from the resurrection of Jesus himself, there are only three resurrections recorded in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
the resurrection of a widow's son, the resurrection of the daughter of Jairus, and the resurrection of Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus. Each began in mourning and sorrow. Each ended in exuberant joy. What made the difference? Nothing but the coming of Jesus. Jesus said of himself, I am the life, and where life meets death, death is vanquished. Death was vanquished, and it will be abolished forever for us when Jesus Christ returns. Isn't that amazing? So this week I saw something on Facebook that piqued my interest. It was a picture from 1922 in Toronto at the University of Toronto where scientists went to a hospital ward with diabetic children, most of them comatose and dying from diabetic ketoacidosis. Am I saying that right, medical people? All right, I, hear, I see them nodding. My mom had diabetes. This is known as one of uh, 1922, one of medicine's most incredible moments. Imagine a room full of parents sitting at the bedside of their children waiting for their inevitable death. The scientists went from bed to bed and injected the children with the new purified extract called insulin. And as they began to inject the last comatose child, the first child injected began to awaken. Then, one by one, all the children awoke from their diabetic comas. A room of death and gloom became a place of joy and hope. <laughs> Imagine that, thanks to these two doctors, uh, Banting and, and Best. Listen. Thanks to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, an entire world of death and gloom becomes a place of joy and hope. We need to believe that. That people can be resurrected, brought from the brink of death to life through Christ. This is the good news. That when you name Jesus as your Savior and Lord, he is also your king, making you a citizen, citizen of a higher kingdom. And this world is not your home. That when you put your faith in Jesus, you have hope that in a decisive moment our sinful nature is eradicated, our bodies will be glorified, our souls will be made fully into the likeness of Jesus. And that, friends, should fill us with courage and peace and hope and give us a brand new perspective on life. I have to tell you about my grandson. He's three. And so our daughter and our son-in-law and their two kids, and they have one on the way in October. They moved to New Brunswick last fall. Part of their reason was to be able to do a, get some land and do a little farming. So they have this baby barn chicken coop, and they've got chickens. And they're laying eggs, and they're in their glory. The chickens and our kids. So there was a tragedy that happened, though, on, was it Friday? Yeah, Friday. Lucas gets off work at noon and he came home and the kids were waking up from their nap and they found a dead chicken in the middle of the uh, fenced off area. Feathers lying all over the place. The chicken was there. None of the other chickens were to be seen. They were all huddling in fear in the coop. And this bothered Caleb so badly. 
And he says, Daddy, so he was going to go clean it up and put it off the yard so that it wouldn't attract more wild critters. They don't know what killed it. But, Daddy, I want to see. I want to see. So, okay. So they brought out Caleb out to see the dead chicken. And I uh, didn't say anything about it till the end of the day. Jessica messaged us on Facebook and she said, it's so cute. Closing up the chicken barn this evening, Caleb goes into the barn and says to the chickens, it's okay, guys. You don't need to worry. Your friend is with Jesus now. (laughs) (laughs) The faith of a three-year-old. And that's exactly the perspective we can have. It's okay, guys. It's okay, guys. You don't need to worry. Your friend is with Jesus now. The one who put their faith and their trust in him is looking forward to the finish line. It's okay. You don't need to worry. Um, Oh, sorry. <laughs> it's good. Tears of joy. <laughs> I was uh, Max Licato, um, Licato. <laughs> he wrote this one time. He said, I was flying home to San Antonio one evening, and as the wheels of the plane hit the runway, all through the place you could hear uh, the unfastening of seatbelts. A voice came over the intercom saying, please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until the plane comes to a complete stop. But no one paid attention. People were opening the overhead compartments, getting their stuff out. And I asked myself, why are they so anxious to get off the plane? And the answer came quickly. They were home. And they wanted to see the people they love. And it dawned on me that the flight attendants didn't have to pull anyone out of their seats (laughs) who might want to stay on the plane for a few more hours because they were home and they wanted to get off that plane. And I asked myself, why do we as Christians Christians hold so fast to our seats in this world? Why aren't we as anxious as these people to get off this crazy world when in fact we're not home yet either? (laughs) Good questions. But until that time, the Apostle Paul tells us one more thing, and I promise you this is my final point, with no stories about food. Pressing on means that I must persevere with persistence. Let me close by rereading the text. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only this. Let us hold true to what we've attained. It's my encouragement to you this morning. Hold true. Brothers and sisters, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have told you and now tell you again with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, 
And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Hold true. Stand firm. Paul encountered Jesus, and Jesus captured his heart. His motivation in life was to know and love and serve Jesus, to look forward to that prize. Let this be our motivation as well. So, church, friends, keep on pressing on. You haven't arrived. Deal with what's behind so that you can move forward. Run for the prize. Persevere to the end. Keep on pressing on. Let's pray. Ah, Father, what an amazing text. Thank you for your word. Uh, None of this work of sanctification we can do on our own. We need your word and the help of your Holy Spirit. But you've called us, Lord, to press on. There are things that we must do in your strength that you provide. So Lord, strengthen us. And I, I pray, God, that in, the, in, in any way that you've spoken to any person here this morning, that you would help them to follow up on that now, today, before they leave, before it's too late. So God, thank you that you did speak to us. Thank you for your church. Thank you that we can be here today to be encouraged and challenged. In Jesus' name, amen.